Hey, everybody. This is Andre Sindate, host of ATL Alts. I am excited to be joined today by Greg Johnson, who is the CEO and co-founder of Rubicon Crypto. I'm looking forward to a great conversation with Greg. We're going to talk digital assets. We're going to talk crypto. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. So with that, I'd like to welcome Greg Johnson to ATL Alts. Chris, good morning, and uh, thank you very much for having me. It's good to uh, it's good to have you on the show. This is uh, going to be the first in what I hope will be a series of interviews and shows that I can devote to the ever popular, ever controversial, depending on who you talk to, topic of if we said crypto, half the world might not know what we're talking about. Um, they might have had their head in the sand, but if we said digital assets, we'd sound like we're real smart. So we'll stick with crypto. Sure. There is um, no shortage of opinions on every side <laughs> of the ledger. Um, and, yeah. um, you know, we have a few. What I will say just from the onset is that, uh, first of all, congratulations on the work that you're doing in the space. It's terrific, number one. Number two, you know, no one has the market cornered on good ideas when it comes to either digital assets, crypto, or blockchain. So fear not. We'll, 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 we'll try and get there together. Well, hopefully they don't have the market cornered on a podcast devoted to digital assets, crypto, <laughs> or 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 anything related. You know, as we were talking about in the in the pre-show uh, meeting, one of the things that I am passionate about is is trying to educate folks out in the general investing public. That might even be a stretch, just the general public about you know alternative assets. Get I think they get way too much. Um, they get they get put on too much of a pedestal. At the end of the day, it's human beings trying to you know create businesses, and and if they're doing their job, they're doing it as a fiduciary. They're trying to sure. um, help people, you know, grow their wealth, or or even if they don't have wealth, you know, how to allocate their their assets and capital uh, so that uh, they can turn you know a dollar into a dollar twenty five. And I always felt like alternative assets. Um, were talked about and, and discussed in this rarefied context. And I wanted to try to create a show and bring guests on who could just bring it way down to a basic elementary uh, sticks and stones kind of level and have honest, real, authentic conversations. And so I've, I've carefully tried to invite people on who I feel like espouse that and to create a dialogue where we can just get through a lot of the jargon and a lot of the buzzwords and a lot of the noise and just try to educate people. So with that as the backdrop, um, give me a little bit about your background, Greg. You're based here in Atlanta, Georgia, um, yes. but you didn't just wake up one day, as I always joke, and decide to start a company called Rubicon Crypto. I so I don't, no, I, I don't want to start there. I want to start with a little bit of your backstory. The backstory, you know, first of all, yes, you're right. We are based here in Atlanta, Georgia, and this is my second tour of uh, uh, the Georgias, if you will. And uh, my family and I absolutely love the community, and Atlanta is such an easy place to live, and we really take for granted the advantages, both personally and professionally, the city and the community. Uh, uh, the state really have to offer. And so it's uh, it's a no-brainer to headquarter the company here in Georgia for a lot of reasons. But, you know, actually, I've had the good fortune of being a bit of a corporate Bedouin. We were talking about this in some of the pre-calls uh, that I've, I've always had an open mind about new opportunities and uh, just a little bit about the lens through which I speak about crypto. I was very fortunate. I got started in uh, the uh, financial planning industry at absolutely the perfect time. And at age 22, I don't think at that time I fully appreciated how perfectly everything, all the, every, all the signs had aligned perfectly for me. You know, I just happened to start as a financial advisor uh, at a company that was focused only on financial planning, the only one in the number one office with the number one manager at the perfect time. There's no way at 22 you could fully comprehend how fortunate that was. But as I've gotten older in life, I've really appreciated how important timing is, how important it is to, not to get too Shakespearean, but I do use the quote all the time, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood 
leads on to riches and omitted, you know, all the voyage of the life is bound for the shallows and miseries. And so I'm not saying that it's a, a, a an absolute do or die, but I do believe you have to uh, develop a good timing for business and, and, and sensing what's going on. I didn't have that early in my career, and then I came to appreciate it, you know, as I grew older uh, and as I had a chance to lead different businesses. But I had the good fortune to be in private practice for 10 years as a CFP, which taught me so much of the the types of, of uh, uh, skills that have uh, really served me well throughout my leadership career corporately. When you're in kind of a particle collider where you work with 200, 300 families at a very young age, you get exposed to the full breadth of the human experience, professional accomplishment, personal tragedy, mm -hmm. and it kind of accelerates your life perspective a little bit. I, I don't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't tapped with the, uh, the wisdom stick instantly, but you get exposed to, you know, so many different people. And, and I, and again, I, I'd like to think I was mostly present for that, but the industry teaches you a lot in financial services. And, and I think that that really prepared me well, you know, we talked also, you asked me to kind of elaborate a little bit about some of the informative experiences personally and professionally that I bring to the business community now and to what we're building at Rubicon. And, you know, as a, a young corporate executive, I just happened to live, and this is a very timely uh, anecdote, uh, as a matter of fact, um, because uh, almost 20 years ago today, it'll be 20 years ago on Saturday, um, I was literally on one of the bridges in New York when the second plane hit. And my young family, we lived in a town, Summit, New Jersey, where, you know, one of the highest death tolls uh, from 9-11 uh, took place, both folks that lived in Summit and folks that commuted out of Summit. Uh, it was one of those epicenters. In fact, 60 Minutes uh, the following Sunday broadcast live from Summit, New Jersey. Uh, so it was a very informative, transformative, sobering uh, window that many people that resided close to the epicenters in D.C. and in uh, Metro New York uh, really can all relate to, the whole country can relate to, obviously, so much of, you know, what goes on in um, uh, financial services uh, can trace its roots back to that that day. Um, but for me, it really galvanized how I wanted to approach business, how I thought about entrepreneurship, how I thought about leading other people. At the end of the day, entrepreneurs know this, but sometimes we forget it. You are not ordained to prosecute your business plan tomorrow the way you can today. Right. COVID should have reminded us of that, although we, I think we've largely missed the lessons from COVID, unfortunately. Uh, and I think we're likely to be in a new world where pandemics don't go away. They hopefully don't come every year. But I don't think we're going to wait another 100 years. So these big life events, Andres, I think we have to find a way to make something good out of them. I'd like to think that those very harsh, austere lessons from 9-11 and living in that community have stayed with me very closely. Yeah. Well, it, I want to talk about, you know, I want to talk about the experience of you being on that bridge, because as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11 on Saturday, um, you know, there's been, uh, and, and every year there is, and I, I didn't have family and I didn't live in that part of the country um, that were as directly impacted as, as you were, but just seeing the documentaries and the sure. films and the articles that have come out over the last, you know, couple of weeks, you know, you're just taken back to where you were, yeah. you know, at that time. Um, and where I was is I had just landed, uh, on, from a plane crossing the Atlantic oh, wow. in Italy. Oh, wow. And I remember the very first thing that, I checked into a study abroad program, and I remember the very first thing that they told us at the check-in. We had our backpacks and rucksacks on, and here we were, like, you know, the quote-unquote, you know, traveling dumb American college kids, you know, going all over Europe on a train. And yeah. I remember the very first thing they told us was, "Go, go call your parents." Yeah. And I thought, was well, that seems like common sense, right? You just traveled for the last, you know, twelve hours. Yeah. Anybody that's gone overseas, you've traveled extensively. 
uh, around the world. It's like, that makes sense. And they're like, there's, there's been an incident in New York and I, the towers um, hadn't fallen at that point. Right. And, uh, and of course, you know, the world was changing literally minute by minute as we spoke. So wow. I, I want to ask yes. you if you could, I know emotionally it can, it can bring back no. lots of, yeah. of memories, but I want to ask you, how does an experience like being on a bridge at nine eleven and losing neighbors and and yeah. you know people that you worked with in an industry, uh, people that were in Lower Manhattan, you know, working in on Wall Street. How do, how how has that informed, you know, whether it's your personal choices well, uh, or or just your career choices? You know, look, there's a couple of things you asked me about. You know, that describing that that uh, moment on the bridge. I was listening to the radio. I heard things developing. I literally was on a phone call with the gentleman who hired me at American Express into the industry just randomly. And I told him there was something going on. I'm about to go over the Tap Anzi Bridge, which is not, you know, a direct span into Manhattan for those that are not from or familiar with the area. But on a clear day, you can look down the Hudson and see the silhouette of the skyline. And he said, no, this looks way more serious. He was watching the news and he hung up and... And then when I realized what was going on and had, had so many clients in Washington, D.C. when I was in private practice that were retired DOD military, and they used to take great pleasure in, you know, toying with the civilians. And, but they did say with great seriousness, you know, bridges and tunnels, bridges and tunnels. And so I'm about to cross the Tappanzee Bridge, which is one of the lar- longest spans in Metro New York. And normally I'm the idiot going 40 miles an hour on a clear day to watch the view in the left lane and I literally buried the, 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 the pedal. So I was crossing the bridge like little frogger going across. Yeah. And yet you could already see the smoke billowing uh, in a long tail from, from that quick glance. And lit, I'll, I'll wrap the story up a little bit. I knew something very big was going on. I could not like anybody comprehend what was about to unfold, but this is literally moments after the plane hit. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I was doing was racing to get to Newark Airport to join other American Express executives going to a leadership conference. I missed the flight. I was late coming back from Boston. That's a longer story we don't have time for. The reality is I realized that wasn't going to happen. I couldn't get a cell phone connection. And I realized a lot of my, my colleagues and all of the offices in the state of New Jersey in which I worked were unaware probably of what was going on in real time. Remember, there isn't the kind of mobile phone and smartphone and notifications that we've come so used to. So people were not in lockstep, not in lockstep. And this is the last time I used a cell phone. Excuse me, the last time I used a pay phone. I got off at the first exit on the Garden uh, State Parkway, went in, used a, a gnarly, I remember even in that panic mode, I picked up the the you know, the receiver, it was so gnarly, I did not want to use it. But I was trying to call my boss's secretary to say, look, you know, if you're not aware of what's going on, we need to go to emergency protocols. I want to send everybody home. And we had a fairly fun relationship. So she didn't, wasn't paying attention at first. And I had to really shake her into the fact that something very serious was going on. And so it was in that moment that I could watch people literally coming into the rest stop, Andres, one after another, and you could tell who knew something was going on and who did not. And what was going on to my right was a gathering crowd of people looking up at the giant console TVs suspended, I can remember, rather precariously over people's heads, these giant, giant units, not flat screens. And you could hear the silence. That's how quiet it got in this rest area. And you could see people that probably had a really good day. They came in, you know, they were in love or they just got into a fight, whatever it was. You could see their paradigms being flipped one after another, drawn over to what the hell was going on, watching, watching it. And then while I was on hold with my, my boss's secretary, um, I... I, I, you could hear they replayed the footage, and each time the plane slammed in, the, the, the gaps would grow louder and louder. So in any event, you know, you ask, you know, how does that change what you do? I, I think what it does as a young family, it certainly, you know, my wife gets the credit for coming up eventually with the notion of kind of traveling internationally as aggressively as we did with a young family. But you, you move away, at least we did, from collecting stuff to collecting experiences, 
and and that's really where we were able where we devoted our resources. We had worked hard for a relative life of privilege, and we really spent our 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 money on travel, on experiences with the family in a very very aggressive way. Uh, it changed how I viewed career opportunities or trying different things. Uh, that sense of of uh, taking advantage and adventure, you know, really formed as a family value at that particular point in time. And then professionally, I think that more than anything, you know, we were a company like many others that were a part of the Victims Compensation Fund, focus groups, the creation of it. And I think it it changed without many in the industry realizing it, the financial planning and wealth management industry. The very creation of the Victims Compensation Fund was a endorsement by the U.S. government of human life value calculations for the life insurance industry. You know, when you would solve for life insurance as a financial advisor or as an insurance agent, you did a needs analysis. Uh, how much do I owe? You know, what are the bills? What's the mortgage? What am I going to pay off? On the other end of the spectrum was this rather nebulous number of what your, your human life value would be. In other words, if I lived another 20 years and worked and saved, if I accumulated wealth at the same pace, if the markets did A, B, C, or D, what would your true life value be? And it was rather nebulous. Well, in part, when the U.S. government used a human life value sort of calculation, it provided uh, a benchmark that I certainly wrapped around when I would speak to people because there were many people who died in New York, Connecticut, Boston, New Jersey, Washington, D.C. that day, September 11th, 2001, that were not victims of a national tragedy. They did not receive the benefit of, uh, you know, a human life value uh, uh, check. And I would argue their lives were worth just the same. So right. It was a it was a really sobering moment. Uh, as a matter of fact, the people that died on 9-11 that day around the country, you couldn't have picked a worse day to die because they died literally in a collective grief vacuum. Yeah. Nobody paid attention. The same, uh, the same outpouring, the same uh, focus of remembrance, all of that was compromised for people that died that very day. Veterans, right. you know, average folk, whoever it was. So, yeah, the elderly. Yeah, yeah. The ramble on, yeah. But, you know it is. Yeah, it is a couple of days away, and I'm thinking about it a lot these days. Yeah, no, I, I I am too. And yesterday was the first time I'd flown since March of 2020. Wow. Uh, as a result of COVID, so I uh, yeah. So I appreciate you sharing that perspective. We're not find um, you in a TMZ video being uploaded for unruly <laughs> behavior, are we? No, I double masked and I we, we could we could wax on about, you know, the reminder of uh, of air travel. You know, we're blessed in our country with a pretty functioning uh, airport and the volume of travelers was way down. So, in you know, on the margins, there's always little things that we could grumble about. But they're, uh, as I say, first world problems. Um, let's talk about your transition. So you, you have. Uh, you have this this wealth of knowledge of being a CFP of of helping families through you as you described you know life's moments. Um, what did you do after uh, working in the financial advisory business? Um, was it from there to Rubicon? No, or? Not, not at all. I will I will condense it. But I think you know for me, uh, I was very fortunate to start at an organization that at the time. Uh, really invested in its people. Um, and I don't think companies do this the same way. In fact, I know they don't. And I, I would challenge, I'm not even sure that my alma mater at American Express or Ameriprise Financial even invests in its people the way that it used to. And so I was very much the, the, the product of that incredible professional and leadership development culture. Uh, there were a few people that went out of their way to contribute to my development, of which I'm very, very grateful for and try to pay back whenever I can. But I think the other thing that I would mention about, about that, that period of time is that I only had really like one job. I only really like have one job for like 23 years, if that makes any sense, right? And um, so when I decided to leave the industry uh, after the crisis, I really, whether it was foolish or not, I kind of put something in my mind where I, I didn't, I wanted to do something different. And so I went and did an MBA at Emory University, incredible experience on so many levels. 
uh, one of the best things I've ever did in my life. And, you know, I viewed that investment almost like an academic country club, if you will. We can talk about that perhaps at another time. But yeah, I, I was so uh, motivated by that. Uh, and I decided to do a couple of different uh, leadership roles that took me into very unfamiliar, uncomfortable um, uh, scenarios. And I think what you yeah. do is you find out not all, all cultures are the same. You find out that what you did for 20 years uh, to build a leadership brand and a, a track record of accomplishment, when you go to a new company, uh, that doesn't go with you necessarily. The, 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 your, in your head, it does. And it doesn't stop you from using those experiences, but your ability to have a mandate uh, is very, very different. So it forced me to figure out, um, you know, for only the second time in my career, it was like my first day at school, you know, it was like my second day at school. And these were important uh, developments for me. I've always been an entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial guy by heart. And so it took me a while to, to find, uh, uh, a great opportunity that brought me back to Atlanta to help a family business uh, scale and think and evolve their strategy in the wellness industry. And I did that for the almost three years uh, prior to uh, uh, collaborating on Rubicon Crypto. And when I exited from the opportunity uh, with that family business, um, people that knew about uh, knew me for a long time in the industry, knew I was available, said, hey, we've got this idea uh, that we think is really interesting in digital and crypto, um, would you be willing to help us out with it? And it's kind of stuck in purgatory, you know, and we need help figuring out what's the right uh, regulatory mapping, what's the right tech stack, what would be the, you know, the 30, 60, 90, one year kind of scale plan. And um, I said, yes, but I, if I'm going to do it, I want to have the ability to come in at a founder within a reasonable period of time. You, are, you and I are having this fine conversation, probably driving listeners crazy right now. And, and so obviously I decided this was something that really excited me. And it was a callback to the industry, quote unquote, that I couldn't resist. And I'm so glad that I, I spent the last you know, almost year working behind the scenes with my with my co-founder, Mike Rizard, who is a brilliant, brilliant technologist, academic, I mean, road scholar candidate, captain of the, you know, the gymnastics, you know, one of those underachieving types uh, who had this perfect blend of, of technology aptitude and portfolio management experience. And uh, more importantly, I think our values were very aligned. And what we were aligned about was two things to start. This is the, these are the two things that got us down the rabbit hole of the business. The first was a belief that this is not going away. All right, digital is not going away. The modernization of money and the notions of how we think about money, currency, digitalization of assets is in its infancy. It's, it's, it's not even born. It's not really, it's probably not even born yet. Okay. Okay. And I want to stop you there. Yeah. So go ahead. If we go into a coffee shop yeah. or to a grocery store okay. or to pump gas, yes. when you say digitization of money, for some people, that means, oh, I can put a credit card into a machine and I can pay. I don't have to carry fiat currency around. Yeah. And I think most people get that, right? Um, we're not breaking we're not breaking any any barriers by by explaining that notion. Now if I pull out my cell phone or my mobile device and I've connected my bank account to an app or my app for my bank account to my phone, I can now dongle, dangle my phone and I can pay at the register potentially. That's a form of digital payment yes, or digital currency. It is. Okay. And I think more people are going that way. Now along comes crypto. Yes. Or along comes the blockchain. And I think that's where this big divide exists or this big gap in knowledge it, exists. It, it is, it is a, what we call the new digital divide. You think right. about the taglines or what we talk about, you know, ad nauseum at our company is common sense crypto and helping right. people cross this new digital divide. And right. we talked about this before, but if we've done anything, we've underestimated the demand for common sense crypto. 
But let me get to the spirit of your question, if I can, just, just for a moment. And again, like I said earlier, no one has the market cornered on really good ideas, but there are some basics that people need to think about and depending on how much they want to know. For example, I'm not sure there are that many people that are really digging into what just exactly is the operational and supply chain model that makes Amazon what Amazon is. Yet they've come to appreciate Amazon, uh, get it, okay, accept it. People own uh, stocks or invest in companies. They don't know how to make a chip, right? They don't know how to make a computer chip, but they've come to accept that they exist. They're of value. People need them, and so they get it. I think we're another five to 10 years away from where most folk come to understand enough about these new emerging products in blockchain and crypto. Uh, but for right now, I'll just distill it down to the base common denominators. When we think about blockchain, blockchain is a way to take the old practice of accounting for the exchange of goods and services or payments that goes back to when people wrote you know, on papyrus or wrote on stone and transferring that to the next level in a purely digital way. And then what crypto does is it takes the things that we probably all know from movies and Hollywood, think about the Da Vinci Code and ciphers. There are times when you wanna send messages about stuff and you don't want folks to know what it is. And so crypto is nothing more than the, the use of computer technology and cryptology with technology now. So, you know, you've got all the rhyming that's there, but I know you want to interject at this point. So go ahead. Well, yeah, because I mean, what you just said, I can think of a real life example. It's so, sort of silly, but yeah. I coached my seven-year-old's baseball team. Yeah. And we have this email chain of all the coaches in the league that's now grown to like monstrous proportions. <laughs> and I'm like, can we please put this in an app? Like WhatsApp, you know, telegram signal like something yes. right yeah. and i won't name the perpetrator but he said let's use whatsapp and, and i'm not picking on facebook i have no agenda but i was like have you guys ever heard a signal and so here we are like dumb baseball coaches we can't even figure out an app <laughs> and the whole thing is about what you just described is like encryption sending stuff and again we're talking about youth baseball so it's not like we're we're talking about anything nefarious here, it's just a more effective way to communicate than an email chain well, and a way for, for, for people to send a message, you know, from point A to point B. And whether we use WhatsApp or we use Telegram, that's not the point of the show. What your point is, it's a way to communicate. Um, and that's where I want to dig into is yeah. like, you guys are, you guys are at Rubicon Crypto. You've got to paint this picture and build this house for people. And then I want to spend the next 20 minutes sure. helping people understand how what you're doing is different than some of the other things out there and, and, and the ways um, that, you know, yeah, this conversation can educate them. I think if, before we do that, if you'll indulge me just a moment, let me, let me just make the case that whatever you think about digital assets, cryptocurrency, blockchain technology, wherever you fall on the spectrum. I think what 2021 has done once and for all has ended the argument on whether or not these asset categories and classes are legitimate. They have to be put to bed. 2021 has done that, whether people want to recognize it or not. And let me just give you three examples. You should, it should have been enough when there were literally trillions of dollars. I'm not talking about retail. I'm talking about institutions, sovereign nation funds have been investing into the bedrock technologies that support the industry. That's been taking place over many years. That should have been a hint that there's some legitimacy. This isn't stupid money. This isn't fear of missing out investing behavior. These are very smart people with very smart teams with very disciplined approaches to how they make investments for their funds at the institutional and sovereign government level. That's number one. Number two, when banks and insurance companies, on the one hand say this is a nothing or it's insidious and it's the evil empire on one side of their face and on the other side of their face, 
they direct their companies to invest in these very same technologies in the scale of billions and tens of billions of dollars over the last two years especially, well, that's either uh, selective hypocrisy or really, really smart strategic aforethought to stall, to allow that traditional financial industry to catch up a little bit. But I'd argue that there's a couple other things that really do matter. And if maybe the listeners take a couple of things. Even if you don't like crypto, even if you think it's nonsense, even if you don't own it and say you never will, I can make a strong case to you today that I couldn't make last year or two years ago that you own crypto, whether you want to or not. And the reason is corporate household company names, many of them headquartered here in Atlanta, Georgia, have now been purchasing over the last year for their corporate treasury. And if people don't know, companies have bank accounts and investment portfolios just like individuals. And because of the interest rate environment and the risk-adjusted return uh, <laughs> options that are available, they've made the decision to buy largely Bitcoin and have it in their treasuries. So you may own Bitcoin without knowing that you even own Bitcoin. And that, again, is another indictment on the legitimacy of the industry. And finally, finally, in the, in the current, at the time of this recording, the House is going to vote very shortly on this massive infrastructure bill. And within 2,700 pages of legislation, there's a three or so paragraphs dedicated to the crypto industry that is designed to, and rightfully so, get crypto to pay its fair share to offset the cost of the infrastructure bill. You don't put something into federal legislation if you can't tax it. And you don't tax something if it's not legitimate. So can we please move on from whether or not, you know, it's legitimate? Now, that, that is important because it's only going to continue to, uh, in, in a benevolent way, invade into all manner of other financial uh, aspects of people's lives over time, some cases more quickly, in some cases less so. So that's, a, that's an important distinction. Right. And I think I think it's super helpful and I appreciate you doing that, Greg. So I think where you start losing people um, is not and not not in your description, but where where I think, you know, again, and this is a function of time. Yes. Right. So in, a, in five years or 10 years, like our conversation will be silly, probably. <laughs> but I'm about educating people. And the ATL Alts podcast is about having these conversations to help educate people. Um, who probably aren't on the bleeding edge. You know, they're not the early adopters, but they want to learn. And so they're hopefully going to tune in. And we have an opportunity to talk about this issue and educate. So Bitcoin, you've mentioned it. Yeah. Bitcoin is one cryptocurrency. That's right. But there's also things like CryptoKitty right. and all these other things, all these other currencies out there, yes. right? And there's a difference between blockchain and crypto. And blockchain is the infrastructure. It's the foundational uh, technology upon which cryptocurrency transactions take place. So you've got two kind of distinct but very interrelated things, right? Yes. So let's talk a little bit about Rubicon, sure. your company. Yes. And you've painted this picture. We've got this foundation why does this company exist? Why? What is? What does Rubicon exist? Are you? Are you? That's no, what are you seeing? And what are you doing? Yeah, thank you. And what, what, look again. What we what we felt was look. There needed to be somewhere between. On the one hand, people. The only way that they're able to access crypto is on a mobile device, on their laptop, and a do-it-yourself crypto exchange. And basically to get advice from the rando table they sat at at a wedding, you know, where they overheard a conversation where the caterer's niece's boyfriend, you know, invested in some NFT. And that's what they decided to do. And I'm joking a little bit, but not much in terms right. of what what fueled people's decision. What we what we saw was that for the first time ever, uh, customers, clients, everyday folk, even with that kidding aside, actually know more about this industry than financial advisors do. 
And that's unprecedented. We've never had a period where an emerging class of assets has captivated people in such a way that they are making investments, not even asking their financial advisor or CFP or CPA. They're not asking their tax professional. They're just doing it. And for some people, they might luck out. For every person that gets lucky, there's a lot more that get hurt. And what we said is somewhere between that independent, you know, do-it-yourselfer, and that's fine if you're good and that's what you want to do, and on the other end of the curve, some very, very illiquid, high-threshold minimum investment products for real rich people, somewhere in between that was an opportunity to create separately managed accounts, portfolios that are professionally managed, diversified, and looked after the same way people have invested in all of the other investment products where they've acquired wealth, okay? The same common sense approach rather than just wild speculation to use disciplines of fundamental analysis, of technical analysis to inform how we make decisions in a crypto portfolio. And in, in a couple of years, there will be many, many, many other firms trying to do what Rubicon Crypto does. But for ne yeah, but for right now, yeah. we are ahead of the curve in bringing common sense and normalcy to the way that people can have exposure. Now, one one last thing, the other thing which is wildly different from any other time in my career, we are telling people, no, you cannot put more money into this. Once you're at three to five percent of your overall portfolio, that is more than enough, more than enough for people to not miss out on what many believe and what we believe to be one of those major transformational periods in human technology. Yeah. I, so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of rich content there. Um, by the way, if you uh, take the example of the, uh, the nephew of the, the server who's trading crypto and they've, they've hit it big, right? They've ridden, they've ridden Bitcoin and crypto up, down, back up, down, you know, and again, I, I this isn't a stock uh, advice show. We don't provide financial planning. We don't provide advice. Yes. So I'm, I'm always like using that as a disclosure, but there are a lot of people that have accumulated wealth on paper, at least yeah. with trading crypto, investing in crypto, whether it's through their Robinhood account, you know, mm -hmm. Robinhood was like, who's that company? And then all of a sudden COVID happens and it's like, bam, they've got 20 million accounts or an IPO and they're off to the races right. and you can now trade a lot of crypto there. Um, and, and, and I know we can talk and wax on about Robinhood and all the different things they're doing. But the point is diversification. Correct. You said it. That was my big takeaway from what you just said. And I'm, I'm we, a big believer we, we in that cannot, too. We can't emphasize this enough. Right. You know, unless you're dialed in, unless you can prove to me you were buying after 9-11 and mortgaging your house to put everything in the market after it collapsed in during the Great Recession, 5% is the maximum that most folks should have. And we think, quite frankly, if you're going to have crypto and you don't have a strategy and you're not following it all the time and you're just making investments on a whimsical basis, we think, yeah, actually Rubicon Crypto makes more sense, common sense as an alternative to people that want to have exposure into the market and, and do it in a way that makes sense like anything else that they did with their other funds, with their other products that are done in a very similar fashion. You know, and, and again, you mentioned something before. The problem, though, Andres, that, that we see is very few people were, were buying and holding. You know, look, crypto is not Amazon, but people don't people only think about Amazon today. If I came to you back in <laughs> you know, 97 and said, yeah, there's this company I want you to put 10,000 bucks in, and, you know, they're, they're a bookstore and they're only on the line. And the only way you can go and purchase is on the computer. And uh, that's all they do. And I think it's a really good idea. You'd probably fire me. Right. Right. And then if you did, would you have had the, the stomach and the fortitude to wait out nine parabolic drops where Amazon dropped more than 50%, one of them, almost 80% of its value. So how much, so people need to realize we're at that very, very early stage and not suggesting the performance in our portfolios will mimic Amazon. The point is, what we're trying to say is, 
look, understand the big picture. Do you or do you not believe the world will be more digital, not more technologically dependent? That's a duh. The, the real thing is, do you believe it's more digital? And then if you do, then you should be paying attention to this industry. And if you are, right. we think we offer a common sense way for you to get in minimum uh, $10,000 to have exposure to a diversified portfolio that's actively managed. So, yeah. um, frankly, it's, it's, it's so, it's so, uh, common sense is neither common nor sensical. Let's put it that way. These days. Right. And I want to get into how your company Rubicon is expressing and, and creating ways in which individuals can participate in crypto. But I, I want to go back. Cause again, the whole premise of this is, Education, alternative assets, discussions with CEOs and founders and portfolio managers and investors. I, I have said this a lot this week in conversations. Uh, I get the good fortune of working in an industry where you get to talk to really smart, informed people. Most of them are pretty humble and you know they, they, uh, they realize that they've got a lot to learn. I'm a student of the markets. I'm a curious person. And what I keep saying is, you know, if you look at the term, and this is an SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, you know, the regulatory body that oversees the financial yes. markets, um, one of them, uh, they define a credit investor as like, you know, two, $300,000 net worth. You know, you've got to have maybe a, a securities license. You've got to be sophisticated. I, and, and I said this to a couple of people yesterday. I bet if you went into a, you know, a, a nice restaurant in any major city, and you said, raise your hand if you're a accredited investor. You know, very few hands would go up because nobody even knows what that term means. Yeah. And then if you said, do any of you have exposure to private assets? They'd say, what are you talking about? Private assets like art? Like, um, you know, do I, do I own a business? Like very few hands would go up. If you said, does anybody have investments in, uh, in, in an angel syndicate or in crypto? You know, you just get like a lot of blank stares because I don't think... I think there's this huge gap in knowledge. And so what happens is all the wealth creation is being uh, accrued to the very top because that's where the advice is. That's where the focus is. That's yeah. where the, the consultants and all the brain power is targeted. And you're, I'm like – You're right on point. Yeah. And I'm on this like war, war path you know, to, well, to, to change that and build this massive – audience hopefully through the show well uh to help give people a perspective that's like okay you know the government's been saying you can create wealth in owning real estate for many years but you have to be accredited to invest in real estate and that's changing with technology it is. but now it's about awareness and how do you select who to partner with and then it's like do i go out and buy a house are you saying i should go buy a second house and like become a real estate investor right. and you know, a landlord or are there other ways? And what I'm saying is there are other ways, but you need to be informed. And if your financial advisor isn't informed and that's the person that you trust with your financial affairs, well, now there's a disconnect. There really, and there, so, there, re there really is. I'll say two things that you just made. You just, you just had a number of great points. I will say about crypto, this is the first time it's an equal opportunity wealth creator or disintegrator for both really rich folk and really poor folk and everyone in between. And again, it's because of the, the very nature of the industry uh, that uh, everyone has been able to get involved. You know, 20 years ago, you know, the, the average citizenry would not be involved in crypto, but because of, of the media, social media technology, Everyone has access to this information that they wouldn't have. And I'm not saying that's necessarily for everyone's benefit. I'm just saying that everyone now has an equal opportunity to lose their money uh, or to, to increase their wealth. And that's where we see, you know, the need for obviously regulatory guardrails to be uh, more clear. And we see the need in the interim for there to be more voices like ours, if I do say so, that I think are sober and are speaking about exposure to the industry in an appropriate way. You know, you talk about education. Can I give you a fun dinner party story that you can, when you get into the debate, you definitely will about Bitcoin. Would that be helpful for you? I'd love, I'd love it. All right. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I was doing a town hall recently and I never, definitely get this question from somebody that heard, uh, this was a well-informed person and they had a, a soundbite that, that they really kind of latched around. And, they, and this was about Bitcoin, but I think you can, 
helps us understand how to think about money and currency uh, maybe a little bit differently. And this gentleman said, how can Bitcoin be real if it's not, if it's real money, if it's not backed up by a foreign, a government, a sovereign government? How could it possibly be money if it's not backed up from a government? Well, for the people that are listening right now, a couple of things come to mind. One, if you're a citizen of Argentina, Venezuela, Israel, or many other countries that have experienced hyperinflation, they will tell you flat out they don't give a flying you-know-what about whether or not their currency was backed by the government. They would just prefer it not be hyperinflated all the time. So just right. because it's backed by a government doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing for most of the, of the world. We're just a little more spoiled. No time to get into the debate about our Fed policy and whether or not we're heading down that road, but there are people that believe that. And so I said to this gentleman, look, I think, that's a, I think that's a fair question to ask. And I also said, I'm willing to bet there's a good chance you have this year participated in a financial currency ecosystem that is not backed by a foreign government. And he said, absolutely not. There's no possible way. And I said, well, you're right. It's possible. It may be possible, but I'll bet you know somebody that is, and it's not Bitcoin. Okay. And I said, by any chance, do you have an American Express card? Fortunately, they said yes. And then I said, well, what happens when you use it? You know, I put it in, I tap, I got to pay the bill. I said, well, does anything else happen? And he said, I, I really don't. Do, do you get anything you like when you, when you make a purchase with your Amex card? Like at points. Oh, great. You like points. Yes, I do. Do you have a lot of points? I, I, I kind of have a bunch of points. Okay. Where are your points? Do you have them in your suit coat pocket? Do you have them in the car? Are they in the house, in the safe, in the mattress? Are they in the bank? Where, where are all these points that you're, you're where are they just out there in the world? Where, where are all these points in the world? We don't even know where they're at. So, you know, uh, I think that's one thing that uh, he started going, uh, oh, I, I see where this might be going. And I said, yeah. and as you know, Andres, we talk about fiat currency. You have to have a unit of account. You have to have a store of value. You have to have a medium of exchange and the social contract that must exist you know, in order for money to work, whether it's backed by a government or by, as I make the argument, American Express. Because you do see your miles accumulate, your points accumulate. You do see when you use them, whether it's on PayPal now, whether or not it's using them on Amazon to make a purchase, these points not backed up by a government are accepted as legal tender at these other vendors. And so yep. for some people, they have millions of points. In most states in the U.S., if you pass away without appropriate estate planning, believe it or not, that will be probatable. The points yep. that you have, the miles that you have. If you are in an unfortunate divorce situation, guess what? An attorney is going to divide them up. They're going to be divisible because they have value. They have value. So there are many other examples of how we, as everyday citizenry, participate in financial currencies that are not backed by the government. We just aren't thinking about it in that way. Right. So did Greg, and what? So did Greg say yeah. American Express membership reward points are Bitcoin? No. <laughs> but what I did say was that the way that Bitcoin's ecosystem operates has many of the same properties as the ecosystem in which these point systems reward programs work for many people that are familiar with them. We have to start the education process by connecting the dots to stuff that people are already using and comfortable with, but maybe don't think about in the literal way in which, I don't know, attorneys and probate courts might think about them, if that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it is. And I, I want to, uh, I want to ask you, you, you you threw out uh, SMAs, you know, which stands for separately managed accounts. It and is. so I want to spend some time talking about how Rubicon Crypto has elected to provide uh, its services to, you know, to the investing public through financial advisors, financial planners, mm -hmm. investment, investment and wealth uh, managers, because there's a lot of different options out there yes. for how a financial planner and advisor who wants to be, you know, even to say forward thinking, you know, maybe is not the right term, but wants to introduce and educate their clientele 
yes. and prospective clientele around the opportunity in digital assets, in crypto, and in Bitcoin. Um, why is that financial advisor thinking about avoiding going and investing in crypto direct versus partnering with Rubicon yeah. to do it, an SMA? Simply put, it's it's uh, financial advisors have a lot of responsibility. And going back to what I said before, the most that we think people should have is three to five percent. And there's only a few that should be up at five, candidly. OK, um, it would. Financial advisors don't have the time to do crypto right. And if they do, they're not doing right by their clients. In other words, why would you spend all your time focused on an asset allocation of only three to 5% max of your entire book of business, your portfolio, your client's assets? You know, why would you spend all of your time on that or 70% of it when it's only gonna be three or 4% of the allocation, 2%, 1%. It just doesn't make sense. So they should not. And in the in the industry, there is a, a longstanding tradition of sub-advising, using other industry specialists, whether it's in the alternative investment space or with other types of asset classes, where you go to experts that focus 100% of their time in those disciplines. And one thing to clarify, right now, we work only with RIAs. Uh, financial advisors that are registered investment advisors. And the reason for that is because they are held to a fiduciary standard, you know, they have a responsibility to look at all of the best possible things that are available for their clients, much like a corporate treasurer has that fiduciary responsibility, a company steward, a corporate officer. And the other half of the financial services industry are tied to the broker-dealer community. It doesn't mean that they don't have responsibilities for their clients. It's just a different standard. And right. as such, they're able to make decisions about crypto on a more independent basis on whether or not they want to allocate for their clients, advise for their clients. They're able to make that because they're held ultimately to uh, an independently higher standard. Uh, and we work with those registered investment advisors uh, that don't have the time to dedicate, uh, uh, you know, as we do, on these emerging asset classes, but they know that enough to know that they want to have some exposure that is direct exposure to these to these individual cryptos uh, and digital assets. And they buy into the notion of a business that is built by financial advisors, largely for financial advisors with that expertise, but also a sensitivity of what it's like to run a professional financial advisory practice today. And, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly spent enough time developing an appreciation. So it's so hard for these ladies and gents in private practice today. The demands are so incredible. And so we want to make it easy and turnkey for them. And then we're also, you know, available uh, for individual investors also. So we, we do allow for individual investors who maybe work with a traditional financial advisor at a bank or a, a brokerage house. Uh, that really is not able to make recommendations in digital assets or crypto, instead of them doing it themselves, they have an alternative where they can work with us too. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in a different setting, once we vet everybody and we go through all the protocols, we can talk specifics about the strategy. But one of the things I want to ask you is, um, as we as we turn the corner for home, sure. um, what have you learned about building this business and for the entrepreneurs and the CEOs and the founders out there that listen to the show, you know, that are that are trying to launch and breathe life into new ventures, new businesses. What have you learned about your customer along this journey that you've been on um, in the context of, you know, building uh, uh, an advisory platform or a platform for advisors, financial advisors? It has Can you talk about some lessons learned? Yeah. It has never been harder to compete for attention, mindshare with individuals today. I don't care what discipline, what your business is. I don't care if it's in healthcare and wellness, financial services, uh, hospitality. It has never been harder to compete for attention. We collectively as humans are suffering from an attention deficit disorder. 
it is incredibly hard to do that. And I think that's one of the challenges today um, uh, that really anybody is going to face. For us personally, what we've what we've really uncovered over the last six months, and we launched about at the time of this taping uh, about five weeks ago now, what we've what we found is we really underestimated the demand, uh, the interest in common sense crypto. So many people, you know, want to participate. They're intimidated, understandably so, in terms of how to get involved. And I think we, we, we knew the demand was there. We just underestimated it. The, the other challenge is, I think, for many businesses, they view their competition incorrectly. And what I mean by that is the competition is no longer the other financial advisor down the street, the other restaurant down the street. The competition now is in the elegant algorithms that are being deployed by many industries to disintermediate you from your customer or or to keep you from getting new customers. And we don't have time to get into all of that, but not surprisingly, when you think about it, the two major issues, you mentioned the SEC as one of the regulatory bodies, the two major themes so far in the Gensler administration, Gary Gensler is the, the chairman of the SEC, uh, one of those is putting guardrails in for crypto because there's so many idiots out there that are making, uh, giving the industry a bad name. It's like your grandmother told you, you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch and all of that. And the other industry that is being looked at or the other part of the industry, and there are many papers even last week, uh, there was significant commentary from Gensler and the SEC on gamification. These elegant algorithms from uh, not objective third parties, but from uh, exchanges or trading platforms and the like that benefit from notifications and really sophisticated technology that may encourage you to trade, maybe not necessarily when it's your best interest to trade. And I think that's that's something that is not just going on in financial services or in crypto, although it is really, really an issue in crypto, in my opinion. It is one of the major, major concerns that I have in the industry is it's so gamified. But yeah. it's happening everywhere, Andres. It's happening everywhere. And, yeah. and uh, we just need to be more aware. And that's the advice that I would give entrepreneurs is to realize your competition is not maybe who you think it is anymore. Um, yeah. and, and especially with financial advisors, you know, I mentor still a number of, of very successful financial advisors. And I've tried to get them to realize the competition is not the other broker dealer. It's not the other company. It's actually this, this device that's close by all of our hands this cell phone and how it's it's got it literally is like mainlining behavioral finance into somebody's brain. Yeah. And, and that's a big shift for most folks. And I don't think we've caught up to it yet. Anyway, sorry yeah. to ramble. Sorry to ramble on that front. It's it it's a great point to wrap on. I I always like to ask people, you know, you clearly are are uh, are are a student of the market and you've You've had uh, one heck of a, a of a journey, and I definitely want to invite you back on the show and and hear an update on how things are going at Rubicon. Love but to. I like to wrap by asking people, you know, what what inspires you and what gives you optimism about the industry. There's lots of things we could look at in the world geopolitically, politically, uh, and regulatorily, taxes, uh, inflation. <laughs> That's not. This isn't the venue for that. I'm. I'm always excited and inspired because, as a natural optimist, um, I, you know, I, I want to hear what when you look ahead in the yeah. industry, what gives you confidence and what gets you excited. Well, as we finish up. Yeah. Well, I believe the children are the future. Um, if you, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry to do that, but I couldn't. Help it. Um, Can't help it. But in what I believe is in the incredible, the, the, the brilliance of this new generation of, of technologists, the, the new generation of, of uh, computer scientists, uh, these, these individuals are literally before our eyes, Andres. We've talked about this. They're, they're imagining a world that I think is hard for people to, to really wrap around right now. And it gets me very, very excited I don't think any era or society has the market cornered on ethics or leadership or anything like that. 
And I think that for all of the negative press that is legitimate in technology circles today, there is a tremendous volume of exciting, positive developments coming from technology. Uh, this new generation is so motivated, so entrepreneurial, uh, and they're thinking about things in ways that I get inspired by and motivated by um, that, that really was one of the factors that drew me back into the industry because I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm watching something in real time that I wasn't paying attention to 30 years ago with Web 2.0, and I'm seeing it happening before my eyes. And it's very exciting and it's very motivating. That's awesome. What a great way to, to wrap up. Uh, that was a fast hour. We're going to have to do this again. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's always, uh, it's always a delight to, uh, to have folks on when the conversation you turn around and wham, there it went. But, uh, Greg Johnson, CEO and co-founder of Rubicon crypto. Uh, thank you for joining me today on ATL alts and for educating us on crypto and I look forward to uh, having you on the show soon to hear an update. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, Anders. Thank you very, very much. Continued success to you, okay? Thank you.